This is Words That Move Me, the podcast where movers and shakers like you get the information and inspiration you need to navigate your creative career with clarity and confidence. I am your host, Master Mover, Dana Wilson. And if you're someone that loves to learn, laugh, and is looking to rewrite the starving artist story, then sit tight, but don't stop moving, because you're in the right place. Hello and hello. Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode five. Can you believe it? Episode five already. I'm stoked. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for tagging me, for communicating with me on the socials. Um, a lot of real creative types popping up there. So hip, hip, hooray for all my daily doers. Um, if you are not daily making, jump back and listen to episode one. Very inspiring, exciting stuff back there. I am daily doing, in some way, shape, or form, working on this podcast. Whoa, podcasts are way more work than I thought, but I'm learning so much about myself, the things that I know, the things that I don't know, the way that I speak. I'm also learning about, for example, right now, how to transcribe my episodes and leave you guys all the awesome show notes. So that will now be available to you on all previous episodes, as well as this one. If you are listening via Apple Podcasts, you click the three little dots in the top right corner. You'll be able to access show notes from there. If you are not listening on Apple Podcasts, go directly to my website, thedanawilson.com slash podcasts, and you'll have all my show notes available there. Cool. So if you are digging the podcast, I would love if you would read <laughs> a leave you. <laughs> love if you would read a leave you or leave a review, whichever suits your fancy. The more reviewed a podcast is, the easier it is to find. And I really would love for all our creative types to be able to find these episodes easily. Sharing is caring. Oh, speaking of caring, quick shout out to my mom for calling me up and calling me out on a made-up word that I used last week in episode four. She said, demotivated is not a word. Also, super shout out to Google for letting me know that I did not make up a word. It turns out demotivated is a word. Um, unmotivated means that one being lacks motivation. Demotivated means that motivation has been taken. Right? That distinction? Very impressive. Also, I had no idea the difference of those two. I think I really meant unmotivated. Demotivated came out. Google backed me up. Thanks anyways, mom. Really appreciate you having my uh, best interest in mind and really looking out for my grammar. <laughs> um, let's see. In this past week, I worked on another music video. I uh, taught a great class at Movement Lifestyle. Had so much fun. If you are listening to this on the day of its release, which is Wednesday, I'll be teaching again this Friday, which is... January, wait for it, wait for it, 31st, last day of the month. Oh my gosh, it's going really fast. Is it just me or is that everyone? Gosh, man. Um, so this past week in my class, we channeled what it means to be attractive, um, which reminded me of last week's episode talking about our dancing birds and mating dances and all sorts of fun stuff. But it was really, really challenging to have like 
Heidi Klum in the mind, but a Muppet or a Fraggle in the body. So much fun. Um, I don't know if we'll do that again this week, but I do know that we will have fun again this week. So if you're in L.A., stop by Movement Lifestyle. I will be teaching at 11.30. Killer. Um, Let me think. Any other updates? Oh, big one. The nails are off. I got acrylic nails for a job. I don't remember what episode I talked about this in, but I got my acrylic nails removed. The first thing I did was take out my contacts because I couldn't do that because they were too long. And oh my gosh, that felt so good. For all my optometrists out there, please don't worry. I do have the contacts that are the type that you're supposedly allowed to sleep in. But whoa, I had slept in my contacts for many, many nights. Eyes feel great. Fingers feel great. I feel great. In general, crushing it at 2020 again this week. Today, however, I want to talk about a specific thing that might be keeping you from crushing it in 2020. And that is fear. Yes. Good old-fashioned fear. Insert the dramatic Halloween scream right there. Which turns out, actually, this is an aside... I found out recently that the director of photography from In the Heights, the film that I worked on over the summer last year, Alice Brooks is her name, is the scream from Scream. That's Alice's scream. That's the scream that I want to put in my podcast right now when I say this episode's about fear. So now you know. Moving on. A couple weeks ago, I put out a survey on Instagram Thank you so much for responding, by the way, those of you that that hollered back. Um, I asked, what scares you? What are you afraid of? And it was very cool to take a look at my responses. I've basically sorted this out. I've determined that there are two types of fear, the kind of fear that keeps you alive and the kind of fear that eats you alive. The first one being, of course, the animal instinct that gives you the freeze, fight, or flight response. And then the other one is literally everything else. So let's talk very quickly about the fear that keeps you alive. Our animal instinct fear has really served us well. It's helped us get to the point where most of us are not afraid for our lives on a daily basis. (laughs) Do you remember the game The Oregon Trail, by the way? Speaking of fear for your life, it was a computer game that taught us about the early settlers and all of the ways that you can die in the 1800s. For example, your wagon might break an axle and you might have to walk yourself to death or um, you might get dysentery or cholera. (laughs) Now, that is some really scary stuff. Even before that time, though, You might have been afraid of being trampled in a stampede, or you might have been afraid that your child might be eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. That stuff right there, that is real fear. Now, there's still a lot of real danger in the modern world. It's just that our stimuli have changed. We don't have saber-toothed tigers or wagons anymore which is kind of a shame because wagons are darn cute. So next week, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite books called The Gift of Fear. And we'll talk about reading subtle signals in our modern everyday life that could really save your tail. That was an animal instinct pun, Um, especially if you live in Hollywood or if you're a person that tours frequently. 
But for today, we're going to discuss in depth the kind of fears that eat you alive, or what I referred to in episode 0.5 with my friend Nick Drago as creative fears. So these are the fears that are not really life-threatening, but I was shocked that when I put my survey out to Instagram, like 99% of the replies I got were these type of fears. So that's what we're going to dig into today. Buckle up. Let's go. Okay. Thanks again for submitting your responses about things that you are afraid of. Please don't be afraid right now. I'm not going to call anybody out by name. I'm going to actually kind of group some fears together based on a few trends that I noticed. So two things in particular. Almost every response fell under one or both of these two umbrellas. Those two umbrellas are judgment and failure. So I'm thinking if we can tackle these two little guys, we can step into some real big power. Now, last week I introduced Brooke Castillo's thought model, and I'm going to really quickly review on that. But if you haven't listened to episode four, I really encourage you do that. The model starts with a circumstance, which is a neutral fact about your life. It is provable. It is uncontestable. Incontestable? Which one is it, Mom? Call me. Circumstances trigger your thoughts. Thoughts are just sentences in your head, which you actually can control, thanks to your prefrontal cortex. More science words. Thoughts cause your feelings, which are sensations in your body, and those feelings lead to actions, which are what you do or don't do with your body. And your actions create results, which are always proof of your initial thought. So it's really important that we choose our thoughts wisely. Okay, so on the subject of fear, I'm not encouraging you to simply not think the thoughts that frighten you. Actually, quite the opposite. I'm suggesting that you understand the thoughts that frighten you. I'm suggesting that you get to the core of them. I'm betting that at the core of these fears, you're probably wrestling with your thoughts about judgment and or failure. And I'm telling you right now that the tiny seed inside the core of the big, big fear is just a feeling, probably an unwanted feeling. So you see... Fear is actually the avoidance of unwanted feelings. It's your body and your mind's way of keeping you from experiencing unwanted stuff. But thoughts create your feelings, and we get to choose our thoughts. So what if we choose thoughts that lead us in the direction of wanted feelings? One of my favorite ways to illustrate this is a little exercise in metacognition, or thinking about thinking, if you're funky. I'd like you to invite an imaginary friend to sit down beside you, preferably a very curious friend, somebody who's very compassionate but asks questions that a five-year-old would ask. Maybe this imaginary friend is a five-year-old. They ask a lot of questions like, why? And so what if? Or what does that even mean? So this imaginary young person is going to ask me tons of questions about my thoughts. And I'm going to rattle off answers as if I know everything. And once a feeling shows up in the answer, 
then I'll know that we've gotten to the root of the issue. Let's start with a a fear of being injured. So if I have a child sitting next to me and I say, man, little one, little nugget, I'm afraid of being injured. And that child might say, why? And I might say, because then I won't be able to do the thing that I love. And they might say, why? And I'll say, because I'll be in pain. If not physically, then mentally for sure. And they might say, why? And I might say, because dance is a part of who I am. Without it, who am I? And they might say, I don't know. Who are you? And then I might say, well, I am an almighty dancer, and I can do unnatural things, and I can do anything, and I am indestructible, except for when I'm injured. When I'm injured, I feel mortal, and I prefer to feel indestructible. Okay, ding, ding, ding. There were the feelings that just showed up. When I'm injured, I feel mortal, but I prefer to feel indestructible. So there's my key feelings there. I'm actually afraid of being injured because I prefer to feel indestructible. Well, what if you could be injured and still feel indestructible? Would you then have the same fear of becoming injured? Okay, let's take a look at a different fear. I'm afraid my work will be bad. The child might say to that, why? And I might say, because that might mean that I don't know what I'm doing. And then that child might say, when I don't know something and I ask about it, my teacher calls it learning. Or sometimes when I'm playing, I don't really know what I'm doing, and that can be really, really fun. So what's wrong with not knowing what you're doing? I might say to that, well, I really like to play too, but I don't like feeling unskilled. Aha, here's my feeling. I'm afraid my work will be bad because I don't like to feel not good at something. Well, how do you feel about yourself after you've learned something really difficult? Or how do you feel about yourself while you're playing? Is it possible that you might not be afraid of making bad work if you thought of your work as play? If you thought of it as learning? All right, how about this one? I'm afraid people won't understand me or won't get the work. I'm afraid they'll think I'm bad or stupid. Kid might say, why? And I might say, if I'm feeling very honest, because I want people to like me. I want people to relate to my work. I want them to think I'm great. And that kid might say, so what if they don't? And then I would probably get real real with myself and I would say, well, then I would feel unwanted. I would feel uncool. And I prefer to feel cool. I want to feel appreciated. Okay, great. So it's not that I'm afraid of people not understanding me. It's that I want to avoid feeling unappreciated. Well, what if you felt cool and wanted and appreciated no matter what other people thought of your work? Would the fear still be there? I'm thinking no. Okay, here's one more. What if I told the kid, the very, very smart kid, by the way, I'm afraid of going to auditions. Kid might say, why? And I'd say, well, 
I don't completely love putting my all on the line in front of hundreds of judgy eyeballs, including a couple pairs of eyeballs that ultimately decide if I will fail or succeed in getting this job or not. And then the kid might say, with all of his wisdom and experience, isn't that what being a dancer is? It's putting your all on display for a bunch of eyeballs to look at? <laughs> that smart little sucker got me. All right, I'd probably say, fine, smart little sucker, you got me. I guess it's not the audition that I'm afraid of, it's getting cut. The kid might say, with a knife? <laughs> and I'd be like, no, we use the word cut as another word for being dismissed or rejected. And I guess it feels pretty crappy to be rejected. Ding, ding, ding. We have a feeling there. Feeling rejected. Well, what if you could go to an audition and not feel rejected no matter what? What if, instead of feeling rejected, you felt genuinely sorry for those poor sons of guns that don't get to work with you? Like, what if, what if getting cut actually felt like a surprise birthday party for you? Like, what if everyone in the room erupted in applause and there was confetti and streamers and cake every time you got cut? Would you still be afraid of going to auditions? Mm, probably not. I would go all the time. <laughs> now, if you're like me, you might be getting a little suspicious right around now. Like, all of this power of positive thinking stuff, is there really any grit to it? Like, is it real? I remember specifically when that book, The Secret, became very popular. I had some big questions about that. Like, does taping a dollar bill to my ceiling and looking at it in the morning and at night before I go to bed really turn me into a millionaire? Now, I could be wrong here, but I highly, highly doubt that. This work is a bit different. It's more systematic and it requires action, some effort, and a lot of consciousness. So let's do that work. Let's put in a little effort and let's get real thoughtful about judgment and failure. Okay, what is judgment? The internet says, and the internet knows, that judgment is the ability to make considered decisions or come to sensible conclusions. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. Actually, I kind of love the idea of being a person that can make considered decisions or sensible conclusions. I wish we could just leave it at that. But the internet also offers an alternative definition. And that is... Misfortune or calamity viewed as a divine punishment. A huge, huge range there. How did we go from sensible conclusions to divine punishment? <laughs> I don't know exactly, but considering that judgment is part of what's kept us humans around for so long, and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere, thankfully, I'm going to opt to think of judgment as the first definition. I'm already hard enough on myself as it is. I don't need to think of everyone else in the world as passing divine punishment on me. 
<laughs> Gosh, that's terrifying. All right, so that's the what of judgment. Now let's talk about the who. Who gets to pass judgment? Well, one of two people. You or someone else. So let's talk about judgment from others. At least in dance, I'll speak specifically for dance, there is no bar exam, there's no MCAT, there is no one institution that says, all right, you're good, you're a dancer, you pass, go on, go dance, go make money doing dance. And I actually think that's a great thing. I have no student loans because of that thing, and that means that everyone gets to dance, even if they can't afford to go to dance school or take dance test. But here's where that gets a little bit tricky. In the absence of an almighty dance deity that gets to click a price tag on us and deem us valuable, it can sometimes feel easier for our minds to give power to literally anyone else instead of keeping it for ourselves. In other words, instead of saying, I'm great and I know that I'm just getting better, we say, "Uh, I don't know if I'm any good. What do you think, world? See, I think that seeking validation is not so uncommon. It's human. And I think it's a result of how we were all raised. But what's unique to dancers and people making art, especially in entertainment, is that we and our work stand at the epicenter of our pop culture's screen addiction and fascination with view counts and clicks and engagement. It can be really challenging to separate popular opinion from your opinion. And that can be dangerous, because then you have a bunch of people who don't deeply understand the work determining its value. Yikes. So does having a lot of likes mean that something is good? No. Does having very few likes mean that something is bad? No. So what does make something good or bad? Your thoughts about it. That's what. And that brings us to your self-judgment, which can be a tough one, so I'm going to call on the old thought model. If the circumstance is my work, and the thought is people will think my work is bad or stupid or somebody's work will definitely be better, then the feeling that that thought creates is disempowered. Checking in, mom, is that a word? The action that comes as a result of feeling disempowered is actually inaction. You don't make work. So the result is no work, which proves the original thought is correct. Somebody else's work is better than your work on a technicality because your work doesn't exist. So here's the new model with a little bit of flexing of my prefrontal cortex muscles. I know your brain is not a muscle. I just, it's an analogy. All right. So the circumstance is still my work. But what if my thought about my work is that I am a person with the tools and determination to make the work that I love? That thought makes me feel empowered. That thought makes me feel motivated. And feeling motivated sends me into action. That action is making work, a lot of it, and probably failing a bit along the way. And the result then 
is that I will have work that I love. And I'll have stronger tools and determination to make even more of it. See, the result is proof of that first thought. Now, here's something I didn't touch on much in the last episode, and that is that your results are really just yours. In other words, you won't have a result like, everyone loves my work, because you can't control other people's thoughts, which I think is a great thing, by the way. All right, let's touch on failure now. What is failure? Well, again, I turn to the internet, and the internet says, failure is the lack of success. (laughs) Now, to avoid going down an endless pit of defining, defining words, I'm going to skip success, which we'll talk about in another podcast, and I'm going to jump straight to the second definition of failure, which I really, really like, by the way. The internet says that failure is the omission of expected or required action. See, it's all it's not this death, destruction, awful, the worst. It's just the lack of or the omission of expected or required action. To me, it's just simply missing the mark. So some people are so afraid of missing the mark that they never even shoot. For example, people who would love to become a dancer someday, but they don't take class because they're afraid they won't be good. You know, they'll miss the mark of greatness, so they don't go. Some people are afraid of missing so big that they set the mark real low. Like, you know, keeping it real safe, freestyling at a nightclub or lounge or party, but never entering a freestyle battle. Did you hear that? That was me raising my hand. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, failure. (laughs) There is one other way that a lot of us choose to avoid failure that's kind of special, and that is self-sabotage. I say that it's special because this is a type of avoiding unwanted feelings that actually feels really good, at least in the moment, and then it sneaks up and gets you. Here are some examples. My personal favorite, procrastination. Putting things off for later so that you can feel good now. My mom has a famous saying. Shout out again, mom. Love you. Uh, She says, why do today what you can do tomorrow? And why do tomorrow what you can avoid doing altogether? Man, mom, you are a professional procrastinator. Here's another one, another form of self-sabotage, and that's drinking or self-medicating in other ways that might seem really harmless or even helpful to an extent in that moment. But, man, they can lead straight into the arms of some really undesirable results. Another one might be lying or faking sick. Or here's one that you might not expect. Overworking is total self-sabotage. The whole time you're thinking, look at me crush this. I am crushing it. I can totally work until 4 a.m. every night and then wake up at 6 and then go to the gym and, 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 until you exhaust yourself to the point of injury or inefficiency. Self-sabotage is a sticky one, and it deserves a podcast all to itself, so let's jump back to failure. There is a metric ton of research and a boatload of really great talks about failure, and specifically failure and its relationship to success. 
I'll link to a few of my favorites on my website under the show notes for episode five. Just go to thedanawilson.com slash podcasts and click on episode five to get all that good stuff. But for now, I want to just point out a couple of my favorite thoughts about failure. Here's a real popular one. The idea that the more you fail, the more you will succeed. I really love that. And I like to think about if there were a number, like what if you knew that exactly 25 fails equals one win, like a really big win? I bet you'd be down to fail 25 times if you knew that right after that you would get your big win. Well, I also think that it'd probably take way less than 25 fails to get a win, so just jump in and find out. Another one of my favorites is this, and it's a quote, and I don't know who to credit for this quote, so if you do, please let me know. The saying is, the only difference between fear and excitement is breath. Consider that people actually pay money to see scary movies and go to haunted houses and go on roller coasters. In a way, fear has been rebranded in our minds as fun. So take a deep breath, put both arms up, and scream your whole way to that audition. (laughs) You're going to have a ball at some point in there. For even just the second, you're going to have fun, I promise. Oh, here's another quote, and I do know who wrote this one. It's from the movie The Farewell, which is written and directed by Lulu Wong, starring Aquafina, and it is one of my favorite movies of 2019. Please, please see it. Aquafina's character's mom, whose name I'm blanking on at this particular moment, says, Chinese people have a saying. When people get cancer, they die. It's not the cancer that kills them, it's the fear. Please go see The Farewell so that you understand this powerful context. And also, please don't let your fears eat you alive. Watch over them with the curiosity and compassion of a young child. Get to the root of them and rewrite them. And keep it funky. (laughs) How come I can't say that without laughing? Oh, sheesh. Ooh, it feels good to laugh. That was a serious one. Whoa, boy. All right, everybody. If you're digging what you're hearing, please leave a review. Send me a message on Instagram or a comment on the website, thedanawilson.com slash podcasts. And I will talk to you next week. Bye.